Warning, the following program is solely intended for a mature audience. Any of the idiotic opinions and views expressed on this show are solely opinions of Dark Cringe Radio and not of its advertisers, which is completely pointless because this poorly produced, dumbass podcast has no advertisers. Furthermore, any rebroadcast or redistribution of Dark Friend Radio podcasts without per- the permission is strictly prohibited. If you do, we will find you. And then we will send three black-eyed children to your home or office to collect your soul. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Coming to you live from the Mistopheles Studios, it's Dark Bridge Radio. Dark Fringe Radio. Will Martinez here with you guys tonight. Thanks for joining on the podcast. And uh, we got a great uh, episode for you tonight. We're going to be getting into the occult. And um, I got my co-host here with me tonight, Gab. Gab, what's going on? Hey, I'm doing good. How are you doing? Very good, very good. Thanks for uh, joining me on the podcast this week. And um, Jay's going to be out this week, but he'll be back next week. He just needs a little time off, so. And uh, he'll be back to normal. Okay. But uh, tonight we're going to be talking Sounds about. Good. Yeah, we're going to be talking about the occult tonight, so we're going to get into that. And um, we also have an interview with uh, Marie Jones, Marie D. Jones, and uh, author of a book called demons the devil and fallen angels so pretty interesting book that she's written written there and uh we'll get into that interview here in a little bit but first we're going to do a little intro and um you know get into the news and then uh, get into the interview after that so wanted to uh, remind everybody again about the uh social media you can find us on facebook instagram and also uh, twitter and just look up dark fringe radio just uh, check us out there we have uh, stuff that's on there every day uh, we always cross uh, posts with Gab. Gab's always doing stuff on horror movies and reviews and stuff like that, giving her opinion on what's going on right now, uh, which hasn't been very lucky this year, huh, Gab, as far as horror movies? Oh, my God. It's a train wreck. It's horrible, <laughs> horrible. So uh, unlike what last year brought horrible. us, I think, you know, last year was a great year. Um, and uh, I think we just got kind of spoiled from last year because this year has been just pretty shitty. But uh, we'll get into all that in your review. I know. Yeah, absolutely. But we'll get into all that in your review. And um, again, if anybody has any suggestions, any kind of um, information they want to share with us, you can always uh, send that to us uh, via email at thedarkfringe at gmail.com. Again, that's thedarkfringe at gmail.com. And how to listen. Um, If you're an iPhone user, just go to your iTunes app. Look up Dark Fringe Radio. You can find us there. Do us a big favor. This is huge. If you can give us a five-star rating, I would certainly appreciate it. And also leave a comment. Uh, That helps out the podcast tremendously. Uh, We're just trying to get, um, you know, uh, the podcast a little bit more recognition and uh, able to bring it to more people. And so that's the only way we're going to be able to do that is by getting more reviews. So it's going to be up to you guys to go ahead and do that for us. We'd really appreciate you do that and uh, go on there and give us, again, a five-star review and a comment. So um, also, if you have an Android phone, all you have to do is go to your Play Music app and look up Dark Fringe Radio. Um, There you can just uh, subscribe and um, have that downloaded to your device on a weekly basis or whenever uh, you get a notification of a new uh, episode being uh, dropped. So um, again, uh, that's the way to listen to the podcast. If you don't have any of those two items, uh, if you're looking, uh, you know, if you're searching around on a laptop or a a desktop computer or maybe, uh, you know, um, a Kindle or whatever the case may be, 
Uh, you can just look go to SoundCloud.com and look up Dark Fringe Radio, and there are all our episodes starting from episode one all the way up to the most recent episode. So that's pretty much it. We're going to get into um, some of the news here in a second, and then we're going to talk a little bit of some occult information uh, that uh, we wanted to talk about uh, prior to the interview, get into our interview, and then wrap it up for the week. Anything uh, you want to add there, Gab, for the intro? Um, no, not really. Perfect. All right, well, let's jump right into the news head first. How's that sound? Sounds good. For 15 years, I've been trying to teach you how to write a lead. Do I have to do everything myself? Get the story? Write the story? We'll do it live! Fuck it! I was looking at the James Brown wig. Fucking thing sucks! That's your kind of thing, Marie. You love to it yourself. Sometimes, yeah. I, I can. Take a look. All right, we're getting into the news now, and uh, the first thing, Gab, I wanted to kind of bring up um, was, um, do you know who Rachel Dolezal is? Um, she's the black white girl, right? <laughs> the, yeah, the black white girl, yeah. The former uh, NAACP <laughs> leader. Yeah, um, I don't know if you heard this or not, but she um, is now being accused of uh, welfare, welfare fraud. Really? Yeah, some pretty interesting wow. stuff. Yeah, after all this, you know, a person of such high stature is being charged for this. What did she do? Well, let me explain to you the story real quick. Let me bring it up here. What happened was, was that um, she was, uh, I guess she changed her name, right? Uh, some time ago. And she changed her name right. to some other name. And so she was receiving income through welfare under that name, stating that she was only getting $500 a month of income. Meanwhile, she was still using her other name, uh, Rachel Dolezal. So yeah, like I was saying, um, basically what happened was is she was still receiving income under that old name, and so she wrote a book. In the meantime, of course, you know, talking about that whole issue that happened with her, you know, uh, changing her assumed identity or her assumed uh, racial racial uh, identification or uh, identity. What do they call it? So yeah, that, racial identity. Yeah, exactly. So. So yeah, that's basically what happened, and um, now she's being, um, you know, outed for this, and um, it's basically to the point where she could end up up to 15 years in prison after she received thousands of dollars in public assistance, and um, she's accused of that welfare fraud, perjury, and false verification for public assistance. Court documents obtained by KHQ show uh, the mother who identifies as uh, transracial. Uh, illegally received $8,747 in food assistance and $100 in child care assistance from August 2015 through November 2017. So uh, it looks like in February 2017, she talked about how she was living on food stamps in an interview with The Guardian, uh, saying that she, uh, the only work that she's uh, had been offered was in reality TV and uh, pornography, which, oof, uh, yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> um, at that time, she said she was worried about becoming homeless and she had two biological sons. Um, the following month, she published a book, um, The Full Color, Finding My Place in the Black White World, causing Washington State Department of Social Health and Services to become skeptical of her income reports of less than $500 a month. So uh, bank rec records uh, indicated that she had deposited about $83,000 into her account in the several monthly installments between August 2015 and September 2017 uh, without reporting the income to uh, DH, uh, DSHS, according to court documents. Now, uh, during the television interview in November 2015, Dolezal acknowledged uh, being born into white parents, 
But also, she says that she identifies as a black American. Amid uh, the controversy of her racial identity, she stepped down as president of the Spokane, Washington branch of the NAACP. So, yeah. um, So, you have this lady who has an issue with her identity. And um, now she's uh, being charged for welfare fraud. What do you think about that, Gab? Um, you know what? I don't really feel sorry for her. She's like a basket or something. Oh, she's just all kinds of fucked up. Yeah, she just always seems to be like at the wrong end of a story. You know what I mean? And never at the good end of a story. Um, you know, it just, uh, I just I don't understand the transracial thing. I, I just don't get it. But hey, that's just not that's not me. I'm not the one supposed to get it. It's her. Um, I don't know. Yeah, but uh, she again, she finds herself at the wrong side of these news stories. I have the clip here. I want to play real fast. Hold on one second, Gab. The woman who was infamously okay. outed as a white woman after pretending to be black has been charged with welfare fraud. Rachel Dolezal legally changed her name to Nikechi Diallo in 2016 and has been charged with welfare fraud, perjury, and false verification for public assistance, according to KHQ-TV. Time reports that an investigation began in March 2017 when a Washington state investigator found out Diallo had written a book. And a review of her records showed she was reporting that she usually made less than $500 a month, according to documents. But a subpoena of her self-employment records revealed that she had deposited close to $84,000 into her bank account between August 2015 and September 2017, none of which was reported to the Department of Social Health Services. During the span of August 2015 to November 2017, she illegally received $8,747 in food assistance and $100 in childcare assistance. Diallo says she fully disclosed her information and did report a change of circumstance to the state agency. Yeah, I'm not buying it. <laughs> I'm just not you know, buying it. Off- I'm, not, yeah. I'm not buying it at all. I mean, I just don't, I don't see how she can say something like that and uh, them not say, hey, we didn't know about this. I mean, maybe it's an honest mistake. It could be, but I, I highly doubt it. I don't know. She's like a hot mess. Her life is over. <laughs> oh, absolutely. She's, she's ruined. She's yeah. ruined. All she has is porn. Yep, that's it. And that's, I don't know if anybody's want to see that. If they're into like that, maybe... Uh, Milfs over forty club or something like that. I don't know. Another story. <laughs> another story I wanted to bring up was. Um, I know. Did you hear about Morgan Freeman? Please tell me you heard about Morgan Freeman. No, I don't even pay attention to the news. So you got to fill me in. Okay, so uh, it looks like eight women accused Morgan Freeman of inappropriate behavior and harassment. That's goddamn right. Uh, looks like a young uh, pro- <sighs> production assistant thought she had landed a job of her dreams um, back in 2015. Uh, when she started uh, work on uh, that show called Going in Style, it's a bank. Oh, actually, it was a movie. Excuse me, Going in Style. It was a bank heist comedy starring uh, Mark Morgan Freeman, of course, and Michael Caine and Alan Arkin. And the job quickly you know, devolved itself into several months of harassment, according to her. And uh, that's what she told CNN. She alleged that uh, Freeman subjected her to unwanted touching and comments about her figure and clothing on a near daily basis. Uh, Freeman would uh, rest his hand on her lower back or rub her lower back, as she said. And in one incident, she said Freeman kept trying to lift up my skirt, asking if I was wearing any underwear. And uh, he never successfully <laughs> lifted her skirt, she said. But he would touch it and try to lift it, and she would move away, and then he'd try again. So eventually, uh, she said, <clears throat> uh, Alan Arkin made a comment telling him to stop. 
and uh, Morgan Freeman got freaked out and uh, didn't know what to say and kind of pretty much uh, stopped from that point on. And uh, Freeman's alleged inappropriate behavior was not limited to uh, that on one movie set, but according to other uh, sources who spoke to CNN, uh, the one uh, the woman who was a senior member of the production staff of the movie Now You See Me, uh, which actually was a pretty good movie in 2012, uh, told CNN that Freeman uh, sexually harassed her and her female assistant on numerous occasions by making comments about their bodies. Now, uh, he did comment on our bodies. He knew that if uh, he, he was coming by, not to wear any top that would show our breasts, not to wear anything that would show our bottoms, meaning not wearing clothes that were fitted at all, uh, very loose fitting clothing. So at 80 years old, Freeman is one of the Hollywood's biggest stars with the movie career that spans nearly five decades and is starring roles in movies like Driving Miss Daisy and Shawshank Redemption. Uh, then in the late 80s and 90s made him a household name. Of course, everybody knows, you know, Morgan Freeman, especially because of his voice, too. Um, you know, he has that uh, very uh-huh. uh, distinct uh, uh, over, uh, what do you call it, voice over voice, you know what I mean? Perfect for a movie. Uh, but nonetheless, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, uh, just another guy in Hollywood now that looks like uh, is going to be uh, taken down by, uh, you know, his uh, inappropriate behaviors. So he pretty much like old Cosby but without like the drugs. Yeah, he did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, he just <laughs> took advantage of the situation, definitely. You know what I mean? And especially of his uh, stature and his name. You know, he's uh, he's got a big name in Hollywood. And, of course, uh, it's going to take more than just one woman to, you know, smear his name. So it looks like eight women came out and said that, um, you know, they've had these, uh, you know, issues with him in the past. So I guess it was all in all about. Wait a minute. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, like, this doesn't surprise me because didn't he date his cousin isn't he kind of like a little off <laughs> yeah like he was, had a relationship with his cousin or something i think it was his granddaughter hold on let me check on that <laughs> <laughs> yeah no no i really i really want to say it was his granddaughter it was it was like his family though right yeah it was somebody in his family he, yeah he's okay just yeah sick. so morgan freeman he, had an affair with his step granddaughter oh my god so <laughs> go figure that out. Yeah, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty crazy. I wonder if him and like Bill Cosby were in a room together with that Rachel Dozier lady. I wonder <laughs> if they would try her. <laughs> I don't know, man. She's not that. Or would they be like, <laughs> you're too much for me, bitch. <laughs> yeah, nah, we'll pass. <laughs> Morgan Freeman in that voice, no, nah, I think we'll pass. But uh, yeah, just another one, you know, to add to the name of the list. I mean, uh, this is pretty uh, substantial. This is not like uh, some of the other ones where it's like, okay, uh, or you had like a bad date and, you know, you want to say that, you know, add me to, you know, the movement to that. No, like some of the, you know, like Anzi Zanzari, that was ridiculous. They threw that guy through the mud because he had a bad date with a girl and uh, she wrote a, oh, yeah. a, a you know, post about it. You know, it's ridiculous. And uh, this tried to do the same thing with Tom Brokaw. Tom Brokaw tried to kiss a woman 50 years ago, and she's coming out 50 years later and said, oh, you tried to kiss me? Get the hell out of here. You're just trying to you know, <laughs> drag that poor guy's name in the mud for something that he did 50 years ago. He tried to kiss you? Get the hell out of here. You're lucky he didn't kiss you. You probably have been rich if he did. <clears throat> anyways, but anyways. Um, yeah, so that's Morgan Freeman, another one to uh, to succumb to um, the... <sighs> The evils of Hollywood. And speaking of the evils of Hollywood. Yep, another one. Yes, another one bites the dust, as they say. But speaking of the. Uh, dust? Yeah. 
evils of Hollywood. Did you see Harvey Weinstein actually got arrested today? Did you see that? No, I didn't. Yeah, they shackled him up and they took him in. Of course, he posted a $1 million bail today. Can you believe that? Wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> no, I was going to say, what did, they, what did he get arrested for? So it's rape. Um, looks like there was some kind of rape charge there. Oh, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. In New York, matter of fact, um, it looks like um, the prosecutors and the detectives in New York were working on this case for some time. I guess since last year, and um, finally they came to the to the conclusion or to the to the point where they said you know that they could um, go ahead and press charges and arrest them, and uh, that's exactly what they did. They disgraced the you know movie mogul Harvey Weinstein was led into handcuffs this past afternoon. And appeared to uh, in court to face charges that he had raped one woman and forced another one to perform oral sex on him. Mr. Weinstein's appearance in the Manhattan uh, criminal court lasted barely 10 minutes, which it's amazing to me. It's amazing when, when you have money, what you can do. Because if that was somebody else, you know what I mean? Or anybody else, they would have been in there oh, yeah. forever. Anyways, um, so he was in there for barely 10 minutes, but stood uh, not only as a break, uh, breakthrough in the investigation to sex crime claims against him, but as a watershed into a larger hashtag MeToo movement. Uh, after decades of um, harnessing his wealth and power to silence women, and after weathering an earlier criminal inquiry to groping allegations, his reign as a film industry titan suffered a decisive blow. In all of the places, a shop-worn arraignment courtroom where he was among the morning cattle call defendants. It was uh, 9.25 a.m. this morning when Mr. Weinstein, in a dark blazer, light blue sweater, and an untucked button-down shirt, was escorted into a courtroom AR-1 by Sergeant Kerry Thompson and Detective Nicholas uh, Guardio. Two investigators from the New York Police uh, Department Special Victims Division. The unit had been pushing hard for months on Cyrus Vance Jr., the Manhattan District Attorney, to pursue a case against Mr. Weinstein, uh, particularly after uh, Mr. Vance declined to pro- uh, prosecute the groping case of the Italian model Amber Bat- uh, Battagliana. And uh, three, year, three years ago, because of what he called of a lack of evidence. So as the hearing opened, uh, Mr. Weinstein, still in handcuffs and looking vaguely shell-shocked, was led with his lawyer, Benjamin Braffman, uh, into the uh, court where he stood in front of uh, Judge Kevin McGrath. And the lead prosecutor in the case, Joanne Illuzzi, announced that the charges against him, first-degree rape, third-degree rape in one case, and first-degree criminal sex act in another. So uh, after that, he posted the uh, $1 million bail. And uh, pretty much took off. So, uh, what do you think? You think this guy is a, a flight risk? I kind uh, of do. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Like, he's raping women. Like, he's got all this money. I don't. I just don't understand it. Like, he's fucked up. You know, he's he's liable to do anything. That's Very how I look at it. Very liable. You don't. You never know. I mean, he's got all the money in the world. I'm sure he's probably bleeding money. Um, left and right, probably trying to, you know, with his lawyers and everything. But, uh, yeah, I'm sure he still has a, lo- a lot of money left over. And, you know, he probably has a lot of resources. I mean, for somebody that can post a $1 million bail, that's uh, pretty gangster. You know what I mean? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Damn. Well, What's yeah. going on? Like, Morgan Freeman, him, Bill Cosby. Every- like, can they not find anybody willing? No. Like, why do they feel they need to do this? I don't know. It's sick. It's sickness, you know? But yeah, it looks like um, he has to uh, come back into court sometime in the near, I guess, six uh, months, they're, they're estimating. 
uh, to actually go with the trial and go on from that point, and we'll see what happens from there. So, but yeah, very interesting, um, you know, developments here lately in Hollywood with uh, Morgan Freeman and of course Harvey Weinstein. Well, we already knew Weinstein was a a creep. We were just waiting for the gavel to fall on that, uh, which it did today. So, um, all right, on a lighter note, which I hope to bring. Gab, did you know that the world's largest orgy will no longer be hosted at Las Vegas Embassy Suites, but now it's going to be held at the Menage Life World History Museum of Science? I'm here for the gangbang. So what? <laughs> yeah. So they had this huge event dubbed the world's largest orgy. And they were going to have it at the Embassy Suites in Las Vegas. Okay, how large is this orgy? How many people are we talking? Um, I I think it was to the tune of around 600 people. Around there, at least. Wow. Yeah, so that's a lot of people. So, yeah, they were going to book up the whole Embassy Suites. So, I don't know what happened. They're not really saying what happened. But they had to change the venue. Um, but um, according to today's news release, the erotic... Heritage Museum Executive Director Dr. Victoria Hartman will conduct a qualitative research project during the orgy to help fill holes <laughs> in the study of the evolution <laughs> of group sex. And a museum documenting the history of sex is a natural to exhibit a history-making sex event, provided, of course, the participants bring their own sex toys and leave the ancient Chinese ones in their glass case. Uh, they're quoted on saying, yes. <laughs> we are excited to be working with the erotic heritage museum on this historic opportunity. Uh, Menage life founder, Sante Sofoleta said in the statement, both, uh, aligned in our view that, uh, consenting adults should be able to fully express their sexuality without fear or shame. So yeah, that's a pretty interesting event. Huh, Gab? That is really like, you just blew my mind when you said museum. So is this going to be like an exhibit, like a live fucking exhibit? Yeah. So the, what they're going to do is they're going to do like a half exhibit, half orgy, sex study, study slash. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what else to add to the slashes. There's a lot of slashes in this one. But yeah, I mean, it's basically be an orgy where they're going to do science experiments. They're going to record everything. They're going to, you know, I guess do whatever experiments they're going to do. I mean. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what hypothesis they're going to, you know. Wow. Yeah, but they're, yeah, that's what they're going to do. But I thought that was pretty cool of them to bring it to that location, which they actually said the reason um, after they, they were asked multiple times, they finally kind of came out and said that the reason why they moved locations was because of the demand of um, how many people wanted to attend this event. So it just grew higher and higher. And the embassy suites was just not adequate enough as far as size to, to you know, accommodate that. So, yeah, they had to move it to this huge museum. Pretty pretty interesting, huh? Yeah, but I'll say, like, I'm kind of disappointed in the number because when I'm thinking, like, the world's largest orgy, I'm thinking well over 1,000 people. 600? That's all you got? 600. But that's, you got to really think about it. That's, like, 600 people that are willing to go out there and, you know, as real people, strangers out in the middle to be viewed, viewed by other people. You know what I'm saying? It's not like you're getting 600, you know, swingers that are used to being, you know, swingers behind closed doors. You know, when you're behind closed doors, you know, nobody knows anything. You know, you can do whatever you want, I guess. 
But, you know, to go out there and be out there in the public limelight, now you're going to be in the museum. They're going to perform uh, scientific studies. On you. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's a, that's a, you know, that's a lot to swallow. You know what I'm saying? Not to, no pun intended. I guess, but I still feel like I'm kind of shocked that there's not more people that are willing to do this. You would think. You would I don't think. Know. You would think. You would think. But, uh, yeah, that's it for the news. That's all I had for this week. Uh, what did you think about those stories? <laughs> I I liked them. I liked them. They're all kind of sick and twisted. Yeah, all sick yeah. and twisted in their own way. So, all right. Well, listen, we're going to get into your horror movie review uh, here in a second. And uh, just hold on one sec. Who is this irresistible creature who has an insatiable love? All right, and welcome to Gab's Horror Movie Review and News section of the podcast. Gab, what's going on? How you doing, hon? I am doing good. Good, 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 good. Sound like um, you're in a good mood this week. So you remember... <laughs> I'm sorry? You sound like you're in a great mood this week, actually. I, I am, I am. You know, like, earlier in the week was not so good, but I kind of had to check myself halfway through, and just taught myself, you know, I can't dwell on negative things, and I have to, you know, keep my eye on the positive things and the exciting things that are happening. And speaking of, so for those listeners that caught our episode a couple of weeks ago on the Haunted Asylum, I told you and Jay, I was going to Waverly Hills, and (laughs) I got my reservation. It is official. I'm so excited. It is official. Yeah, I saw when you posted that on uh, Instagram, and uh, I was elated with joy uh, <laughs> and also a little bit of envy as well because um, I saw that. I was <laughs> like, that is so fucking awesome. I am so happy for you. Um, I guess you're going around the end of June. Is that correct? July 27th. Okay, so the and end. I found out that I can do, I can post, like, I can go live from awesome. there. I wasn't awesome. sure what their rules were going to be. Yeah. But yeah, I can. And I'm going live awesome. on Instagram. There when we I'm go. There. We're doing an Instagram live with Gab at Waverly Hills. You heard it here first. It's going to be uh, towards the end of July. That's going to be the episode for that week. It's going to be fucking awesome. And I can't wait uh, to see what you see at Waverly Hills because I know you're going to see some shit while you're there. I know you are. You know, and I'm I'm going by myself. Originally, I wanted to take my sister with me, but she can't make it. And one of the cool things is I'm actually going to get to meet one of my Instagram followers. After the show, he hit me up, and he was like, hey, you're going to love Waverly. The place is awesome. He's like, I've been several times. You know, I have a ghost hunting crew. In fact, we're getting ready to go in a couple of weeks. So that's how I got hip to July 27th. I went and got my reservation on the same day, so I'm actually going to get to meet up with his ghost hunting crew, and no, that way I'm not completely by myself in there, but this girl hit me up on Instagram, and she was like, look, I go there, I've been there several times, I've went with groups, and I went by myself. She's like, nothing ever happens in groups, but I've had some really crazy shit happen to me by myself. She's like, so if you get the chance to, make sure you venture off by yourself. Yeah, that's. that's so I think the, I'm going to do it. That's the key. Yeah, definitely venture by yourself uh, because that's where you're. You're definitely going to get some type of um, some evidence, I think, and that's going to be awesome. I'm so happy to hear that we're going to be able to do a live um, 
uh, a live feed from there. So that's going to be awesome. And then once uh, that gets closer, we'll remind everybody on how to catch that feed through Instagram. Make sure you uh, you know get on Instagram and uh, join that and uh, look up Dark Fringe Radio. Share and subscribe to our page and uh, we'll make sure to bring that to you once that comes along. So yeah, I'm very happy. Uh, for you, Gab, and can't wait for that. That sounds like so exciting. I know. I am stoked, yes. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> okay. Well, listen, that's great news. Um, so, listen, I wanted to ask you, who did you have on the cutting board for this week? Uh, who, who's the victim? <sighs> oh, you already sound Another disaster. <laughs> Another disaster. No. Another disaster. All right. So, I originally wanted to review A Quiet Place. But, unfortunately, I, like, fell asleep within the first five minutes of the movie. So, apparently, it didn't really catch my eye. And then afterwards, everyone was like, well, it was kind of slow and boring. You didn't really miss anything. So, I decided, you know, I'm not going to try and rewatch that. I'm just going to move on to the next horror movie playing in the theater. And that was Truth or Dare. Truth and, or Dare. Okay. So, I'm assuming it's based off the Truth or Dare <sighs> game, correct? Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> Sounds like you're so disappointed about it. <laughs> you know, I don't know which was worse, the Winchester or Truth or Dare. I really don't. That was... I mean, it was so bad, Will. Really? That really? I had to dare myself. Hmm. I had to dare myself to actually finish wow. watching that movie. Like, for real. Like, I had to tell myself if, that if I didn't finish watching this movie then I couldn't partake in any activities that made me happy for the rest of the night. So, of course, you know, I finished the movie, and I have one word to, like, sum everything up. Let's hear it. Lame. Oh, my God, that movie was lame. Horrible. Let me me guess. PG-13 lame, huh? Oh, yeah. It is. It is. I'm not even going to rate this movie. No? I can't. I can't. I want to send it back to the director and be like, hey, you know, when you can put together a movie with a believable plot that's decent and made for audiences that are above the age of five, then I'll rate your fucking movie. Get this shit out of my face. Oh, it's so it was dis- that bad. That's so disheartening. It's just like this year has been so horrible for horror movies. It's just like nothing as good has come out. I think we were so just like... We, we just had it so good last year with so many good horror movies. And I think this year we just kind of went back to the norm prior to 2017, which was shit, you know, but, uh, there's a couple of movies. There's a couple of them that I like Halloween and hereditary. I really want to see, but I'm kind of getting scared because everything that's came out so far has just been bullshit. Yeah. And it's like, I hope these movies don't turn out to be the same. I hope so. I'm scared. I hope so too. And I really have high hopes for both of those movies. I mean, Hereditary is supposed to be absolutely fucking phenomenal. And um, Halloween, I mean, I just hope they fucking do it justice. You know what I'm saying? I hope they do it justice and I hope they do it the right way. I just have this feeling, this like gut feeling that we're going to be disappointed. Oh, I hope not. I hope not, Gab. So listen, tell me about the plot of this movie. What is this movie about exactly? (laughs) (laughs) The plot. (laughs) You're funny. (laughs) (laughs) This plot is, oh my God, this plot is so bad. All right, how can I describe this movie? I don't even really want to tell you guys because it's that bad. But, um, all right, so you got, like, this pitiful group of college kids who 
pretty much decide to go to Mexico for spring break. And let me explain what I mean by, like, pitiful, okay? If you were a college kid, all right, and you're on spring break, right? you're in Mexico, right? would you just hang out all day, take in selfies, drinking probably, like, watered-down margaritas, and, I don't know, dancing at the tourist resort that you're staying in? Absolutely I don't not. know about you. I'd be at the Incan ruins or the no. Aztec ruins or something like that. That's where I would be. I mean, to me, when I think of Mexico, it, like, it screams debauchery. Yeah, you know, I'm pretty sure. Me- yeah, I'm pretty sure Mexico is like considered probably one of the most sinful places. I mean, definitely Tijuana is on there for <laughs> sure. So I can guarantee, I can guarantee you that you would never, ever, 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 ever find me hanging out poolside taking selfies if I were in my early twenties on spring break. I mean, fuck that. In all honesty, you're probably going to find me at like a donkey show or something. I'm in Mexico. <laughs> a donkey I'm show. In my early twenties. <laughs> I want to have fun. You know what it is, though. I want to have fun. You know what it is, though. It's the like the millennial version of horror movies. I mean, I guess millennials do that. They just sit there at the pool, take selfies all day, right? Isn't that kind of like a millennial kind of thing? Uh, oh my god, it gets worse. Oh, so this it. is what they decide to do for fun. They decide to break into a Spanish mission and play a game of truth or dare on their last night in Mexico. <laughs> like, are you fucking kidding me? Oh, Lord. Not on my spring break. Right. That's what this group did. Right. That's why they're pitiful. It's like, what kind of college kids do this? Lame. Oh, my God. It's so lame. Idiot. So they break into this mission, right? And then they start this game of truth or dare that happens to be possessed by a demon. What kind of fucking demon possesses a game of truth or dare? Honestly. The demon like, of Milton Bradley. People. <laughs> the demon of Milton Bradley. <laughs> <laughs> right. Demon of Milton Bradley. So once you start playing this game, it's like you got to keep playing. And if you choose dare, then you've got to go through with a dare or you die. If you choose truth, you got to tell the truth or you die. Basically, you're pretty much, you pretty much have to play until you die. You can't unrun, you know, you can't outrun um, this, like, demon game of truth or dare because the demon in the game is going to find you wherever you are in this movie. Sounds like it's a lame. night. It sounds like a night movie with Harvey playing. Weinstein. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the movie's lame. The kids are lame. The game is lame. Even the demon's lame. Yeah. And, you know, I want to revoke that. I want to invoke his demon card. For real. Bitch-ass demon. He's been possessing this game for like... (laughs) He's like been possessing this game for like 50-something years. So you'd think by now, right, that he's got some really killer, I don't know, dares going on maybe? You would think. You would think. This demon, no bueno. No bueno. No bueno. No, yeah. Whatsoever. Lame. Like, okay, there's this kid... One of the kids in the group, stereotypical group of college kids. You know, you got your goody two shoes, your party girl, your jock, your you know whatever, your gay kid. So, gotta what throw do a fat you kid think the demon dare the fat kid, the kid, kid to do? No fat kid, huh? No fat kid in there. There's usually a fat kid in there. <laughs> no, there I'm was a no fat kid. For the fat kid. No, okay. no fat kid. <laughs> okay, sorry. No fat kid. Go ahead. But this demon, he dares. What do you think he dared the gay kid to do? come out of the closet. Like, are you for real? 
I this is your dare? That was it? The girl that's like a party girl. He dares her to go up on the roof and walk the perimeter until she's done drinking a bottle of liquor. I'm sitting here like, oh, I'm watching wow. this movie, and I'm thinking to myself, like, is this, is this all the demons got? Nothing but, uh, nothing but a bunch of stupid PG-13 dares? It's a millennial demon. You're a freaking demon. He's a millennial demon. You're a demon. <laughs> yeah, a millennial. A millennial demon. You're, you know, I don't know. In my opinion, if you're a demon, you're supposed to be daring these kids to do really fucked up shit. I mean, if I was a demon, yeah. and I had a group of kids, you know, playing my truth or dare game, things are going to get seriously twisted. Yeah, of course. I'm like daring all of them to start banging each other. <laughs> like, yeah, there's going to be an orgy. I'm going to dare you to shit in her mouth. Whoa. I'm going to dare you to pick somebody to kill. Oh. You know, because I'm a demon. That's right. That's I'm supposed right. to be, I'm supposed to do all kinds of fucked up shit. I'm a demon. Not this demon. This, this demon is this. This demon wants to uh, revoke your Netflix subscription for a month and have you suffer. That's what his thing, <laughs> that's his idea of suffering. <laughs> I mean, in all honesty, like, if you were a demon, well, and you were possessing a game of truth or dare. I, I would hope that you would possess something way more interesting, like the oh, Pope or something. I would have way but, more interesting ideas than that, trust me. Right. But if you were possessing this game and these college kids are playing, like, wouldn't you have them doing fuck shit? Or is that just me? No, I mean, if you really think about it, now, now all joking aside, if you really think about the, the demon, right, a demon, you're supposed to be thinking about the most vile, like, demonic fucking vile shit that you could possibly think of. That's when you think about a demon, right? That's what I think, at least, right? Right. Right. Not some kind That's of... That's what I think. Yeah. Not some kind of bullshit like what you're talking about, like I said. And I wasn't even joking about the millennial demon. I mean, that's exactly what it sounds like, a millennial demon, because it's soft as hell. I mean, it just <laughs> makes no sense to me. I mean, that's what this guy's making you do, walking around the fucking house, you know, drinking a bottle... Like, uh, hello? Like, that's like stuff like my fucking cousins do on a weekend. Fucking walk around the house with a fucking bottle of vodka. Come on, please. Get the fuck out of here. That's not doing anything. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, don't fall. You yeah, know, like, please. <laughs> oh, tell your dad you're gay. Like, are you serious? Yeah, right that was now? like last weekend. Are you please. fucking serious? <laughs> oh, God. So I tell you what, if I, if I was this demon, you know what I'd do? What would you do, Gab? I, if I was this demon and I had the opportunity to dare somebody, I'm going to dare this fucking director. To make a good movie? Name. Jeff, oh, okay, Jeff Wadlow, that's the director of this film. I'm going to dare him. I'm going to take, I'm going to use my demon powers, <laughs> like send him back in time, and I'm going to dare him to kill the Spirit Brothers. You know, the directors of like the Winchester, the Winchester. movie that I loved so oh, much? Yeah, just round them all up. I'm going to dare him to go, yeah, go back in time and uh, go kill the Spirit Brothers. That way that god-awful Winchester movie never comes into existence. And then, here's the kicker. I'm going to double dare you to kill yourself. Kind of like a homicide-suicide type of deal. That way, this stupid truth or dare movie is never made either. Oh. Either way, some, you're dying. If you don't do the dare, you're going to die. And the dare is to die. 
So it's kind of like a win-win situation, and nobody has to watch these movies. It's like a Saw version of, of for, uh, for horror movie directors, like a Saw version of that. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it was, oh my God, it was so bad. Uh, it was uh, It was horrible. Well, that's very, very disheartening yeah. to hear. Uh, truth or dare. I actually, I did see the, um, I saw the um, the uh, advertisement for it, and I just looked at it. I was like, what the fuck is this? But I never actually uh, sat down or tried to watch it. I had the opportunity to do that, but I was like, yeah. I was like, I don't think so. Uh, it just never really appe- appealed to me. And, and thank you so much for <laughs> helping me avoid that bullet of how many minutes of uh, torture that you uh, had to go through to endure that. And uh, Yeah. Yeah, that's horrible. That's horrible. You were smart not to watch it. You know I don't what? know what I was thinking. I, I don't <laughs> I know. I, I kind of half subscribe oh, to like, don't judge a book by its cover, but judge a book by its cover. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's just It's me. just, I, I wanted to, I wanted to review a movie that was kind of newer. Yeah. And yeah. I only had like two options. And There's the no one job. I fell asleep on in the first five minutes. So that right there tells you all you need to know about A Quiet Place. Oh, geez. And then I got this bullshit movie. I'm just like, man. Yeah, a quiet place. A quiet place. I kind of feel that like was your, maybe. That was your place after five minutes yeah. of watching the movie. It was a quiet place. <laughs> I don't even remember falling asleep. I just remember waking up and the credits were rolling. And my niece oh. was like, you slept the entire time <laughs> and you were snoring. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I've never fallen asleep in a movie ever, well, ever. First time and I fell asleep movie. for that movie. There you go. There you go. Well, that's a conclusion for that <sighs> freaking movie for this week. So, yeah, if you can avoid it at all costs, it sounds like uh, Truth or There is the one to avoid, uh, just like the Winchester from last week. So, um, any news in the uh, the horror genre at all, Gab? Anything at all? Um, a couple of things. I'll admit, I kind of slacked this week on the news a little bit. But um, something did catch my eye. So, have you ever heard the theory that suggests Hellraiser is a metaphor for addiction. No, I never heard that. That's the movie true. Hellraiser. Yeah, yeah. No, I know the series. I have never heard that. Yeah, I've never heard of that either. So it kind of caught my eye. And I guess the folks over at um, Ain't Logic, they just released like this compelling fan theory that suggests Clive Barker's Hellraiser is actually a metaphor for addiction. I mean. If you think about it, I guess it's not so far-fetched. I mean, when I started to read the theory, and there's a video on it on YouTube, it started to kind of make sense. I mean, I could kind of see how Hellraiser was a metaphor for addiction. I mean, you know, nowadays, drugs are pretty common in horror movies. I mean, they're pretty common just, I guess, in everyday life. You know, I don't know how many more songs I can take hearing about Molly. I mean, drugs are, like, everywhere. Everyone's getting high. It's in your face. It's in your face. But, uh... Yeah, yeah, it is. But the theory kind of goes like this. So I guess Frank is the addict, okay? And the Lama configuration box is the potent drug, all right? And after literally becoming hooked, because, you know, the hooks come out of the box, (laughs) he, like, meets these manifestations of addiction, like the Cenobites. I guess they're supposed to represent those manifestations. And then Frank escapes. Um, their grasp briefly. That's supposed to be a metaphor for sobriety. Mm-hmm. But then the Cenobites pursue him, and that's supposed to be like the metaphor for relapse. 
And then, of course, you know, you got, like, Pinhead, who embodies the most destructive type of addiction. You know, he's got, like, this cold um, indifference to everything, but, you know, the pleasures that he can offer. And then he's always, you know, mocking the things that help addicts escape their addiction, like religion and, um, you know, medical attention, things like that. Of course, yeah. So... It's, it's kind of an interesting video. It's like a YouTube video, and what is it called? Oh, Hellraiser, Addiction or Horror. It's like an eight or nine minute video, I think. That's it's really short, cool. That's pretty but cool. it breaks down the entire whole Hellraiser movie and explains everything in a way that showcases addiction. It's kind of interesting. It, it kind of made me think about it. Yeah, I mean, it, I could it's see creative theory. It's creative theory, and it's you know what I can see the metaphors in all of it. I mean, there's and like you said, there's a high, high, high uh, volume of uh, religious undertone um, in the movie. I mean, even to the point Frank's last words were what Jesus wept. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of like un- uh, religious undertones in that movie. So you can kind of see, you know, how that could be used as a metaphor for sobriety. That's, that's absolutely mm-hmm. brilliant. I, I find that absolutely brilliant. Uh, that's, that's, that's crazy. I never heard that before. I had never heard of it either. And it caught my eye, but yeah, it's, if you're interested in it, check it out. It's a video on YouTube and it's called Hellraiser Addiction or Horror. Really short. It's actually really kind of good. That's awesome. Oh. Yeah, no, no, we're going to check that out, and uh, we'll be posting that on the uh, on the different uh, social media sites, so just uh, be out and look out for that. Um, okay, anything else uh, for your review and news for this week, Gab? Well, just, you know, how we were talking about so far this year has been, like, really bad with horror movies. Yes. We got Hereditary coming out, and then the movie Upgrade kind of looks promising, so I'm really hoping these two movies will kind of rescue 2018's year in horror. Because so far, it's so bad. It is. It's horrible. Um, it's horrible. And what's that other movie supposed yeah. to be about? I, I know a little bit about Hereditary, but what's the other one movie supposed to be about? I, I don't know. I have no idea what the other one. Um. Okay, so from what I can tell, Upgrade is about this guy who gets mugged, and he's paralyzed by his attackers, and then his attackers kill his wife. So, you know, he's laying around paralyzed, and then I guess this billionaire inventor comes around and offers him a cure which is supposed to be like some artificial intelligence implant that is going to enhance his body. So once it's implanted, he gets these superhuman abilities, and then he decides to go after the people who mugged him and killed his wife. It looks like a good revenge movie. It looks a hell of a lot better than anything that's came out so far. Yeah, this this, this year so far is just absolutely just horrible. I mean, just nothing that I've seen. Um, has even given me the l- glimmer of hope of oh you know this year is going to be a great year, but um, yeah let's let's hope that changes things around this year with those two movies and of course you know we have to expect Halloween yeah. uh, a little bit later down the road after that so you know hopefully that'll change things as well so I hope not to be disappointed with any of those movies I really hope not so I hope not either <laughs> and then guess I found out who um. Tom Six, that's the uh, writer for the Human Centipede Trilogy, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah uh-huh. Tom Six. Mm-hmm. He's coming out with another sick movie. Really? Ah. Is it going to be a, 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 like he, a sequel to the Human Centipede series? Or? No, it has nothing to do with the Human Centipede. In fact, from what I read, he is planning to outdo himself. Oh, really? <laughs> so I guess the movie is going to be called The Onania Club. As of right now, there's, like, no plot details. It's a mystery. Mm. 
Mm. But supposedly, it's supposed to be, it's supposed to promise that it's going to be one of the most vile, inhumane movie experiences of all time. Well, I'm uh, looking forward to that, definitely. Yeah, me too. I mean, I don't know, this Human Centipede, it was kind of like a bad movie, but yet, it's like, it was kind of good. I got to give him an A for originality. That's where it was it, definitely sick. That's where it, it, it sh- you know, it kind of shined in its originality because if you look at it overall as a movie, it's not that great, just like what you said. But it's so different and so fucked up, <laughs> you know, versus any other kind of movie out there. You know, it's uh, it kind of stands on its own. Yeah. Yeah, but that's it that's all i've got all right well listen that's uh that's a wrap for this week and uh i do appreciate your having your uh horror movie news and review and i do appreciate it where can everybody find you um for your latest uh reviews on instagram gab's already dead perfect gab's already dead thanks so much gab for your segment with the horror movie news and review and we're going to jump into some occult talk so uh stick around All right, and welcome back to the podcast. And uh, Gab, we started talking uh, earlier this weekend. You know, we started talking about you know the subjects for the podcast and so on and so forth. And you know, I brought up that uh, we should do something on the occult. And um, you know, I know that's something that we've been meaning to do for some time. And uh, I'm finally glad to be able to do that. And I also was able to have an interview with uh, Marie Jones here, and uh, she's an author of a book called uh, Demons, the Devil. And uh, all the fallen angels, and uh, it's a very, very interesting book where it kind of chronicles uh, the history of Satanism and the occult uh, from the beginning of time up until now. And uh, so, um, we'll be playing that interview after our little talk here about some of the you know figures in the occult that we thought that was pretty significant. And uh, I want to start it off with Gab. Mm-hmm. And uh, Gab, I know um, there was somebody that you wanted to talk about um, that was uh, a pretty interesting figure in our time. Yeah, I so I chose to uh, do Marie Laveau, who's like the voodoo queen of New Orleans. Of course. I don't know. She's always, yeah, she's just kind of always been intriguing to me um, ever since I first heard about her. Voodoo in general is an intriguing subject to me. You know, I definitely believe it's real. Um, I believe in its powers. And um, I don't know. She's probably, in my opinion, one of the most well-known figures um, involved with the occult. She actually, she pretty much reigned over New Orleans in the late 19th century. And, you know, even after her death, you know, she still believed to haunt, you know, New Orleans to this day. Um, I don't really know how I feel about her. Like, I don't really know if I believe that she was as powerful as, you know, they say. Um, Kind of an interesting life, you know, she was born sometime around, like, 1794. I honestly don't think anyone knows the real date. It's all pretty much speculation, kind of like much of her life. Um, But she was born in New Orleans. Uh, She was of mixed race. She was black, white, Indian. And from the moment that she was born, she was a free woman of color, which is really amazing, you know, back in that time. Um, that's very rare. She grew up, you know, she was, yeah, it is. It was really rare. Um, she grew up, you know, she was reported as being like really beautiful woman with good features. So we pretty much know that what that means is she had more white features than anything. 
but it was that those features that made her like highly desirable back then. Um, she ended up getting married to this man named like Jacques Perry in 1819. Mm-hmm. And he was also of mixed race. He was also a free man of color and he was from Haiti. Oh, wow. Um, it's kind of weird, but like not long after getting married to Perry, um, he disappeared. <laughs> like he just up and left. He vanished. No one seen him again. You know, it was rumored that he returned back to Haiti. But I've always kind of thought like his disappearance was a little bit weird. You know, that he just up and left. Yeah, people just. And don't then it was like, it. you don't do that. No. Yeah, it was. It's kind of weird. And then five years after he had been missing, his death was reported. But to this day, there's never been like any certification of burial. That's just suspect to me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that screams of uh, some yeah. type of uh, nefarious action happened there. Yeah, and then after he left, she uh, she started going around and calling herself like the Widow Perry, and what she started doing was working as a hairdresser for like wealthy white and Creole women. And this is how she ended up supporting herself. Now, you know, and I know, there's nothing but like gossip that goes on in a beauty shop. And what started happening was like all of her rich white clients started confiding in her about, you know, their lives, about um, their husbands, business affairs, who their husbands were having affairs with. And um, it was said that Laveau was like practicing voodoo at this time. Um, Voodoo probably learned from her Haitian husband, but it's never really been confirmed where she actually learned the voodoo from. Um, the only thing that we really know is that she was definitely making um, a note of all the information that was being given to her in the beauty shop. Uh-huh. And what she was doing was she was taking that info that you know she had learned from her clients, and she used it to gain power and uh, prominence in New Orleans. So I, I kind of feel like her voodoo stuff was a little bit, of a show to me. Um, yeah, a little bit. Sounds I don't know. Like I just, you know, she had the capability of learning it, you know, uh, with, you know, her husband or her boyfriend being the Haitian man, because, you know, that's very prevalent in Haiti, you know, voodoo. And um, so that's, that's a, that's a high possibility. And then also, like you said, getting all that information from all those women at the store or at the, the beauty shop. Yeah. So after, after that, you know, stint there for, a little while as a beauty um, in the beauty shop, she ended up getting involved with this other man who his name was like Louise Christoph Dumney de Glatton, I think. He was another man of mixed race. He was also from Haiti. And um, after she kind of like hooked up with him, she gave up her hairdressing gig uh, and she ended up devoting like all of her time to being this supreme voodoo queen of New Orleans. So her and the Galapian, they ended up living together in this house on North Rampart until he died in 1855. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like weird. She outlived another, like, husband or lover, I guess. Jeez, her and uh, the Galapian, they were never actually married, but they had, like, 15 kids together. Wow. 15. 15. They were busy. They were busy. There was nothing to do back then. <laughs> <laughs> there was no Netflix. Was um, but yeah, so 
Yeah, so she just, like, devoted all of her time to uh, being the voodoo queen. And, you know, most of us know, like, the voodoo that was practiced by uh, the black African slaves back then, it really was like a mixture of African and Caribbean rights. You know, most of the time, these rights were usually held in secret, like somewhere deep in the bayou. Um, and because of the secrecy, most of what is known about Laveau is really hearsay. I mean, it's all kind of rumors. There's not a lot of hard, concrete facts, I guess, about her. Um, so it could have been a, a lot of the people who just had a, maybe a grudge against her to could have made all these rumors then, huh? Well, she would, like, there's some stories about her. Um, for instance, there's this one story where I guess there was this, it was a son of, this very prominent and wealthy family and he had raped like this young girl who was of lower class and the evidence against this guy was like really strong and him and his father went to Laveau they went to her for help in getting him acquitted supposedly like the father had promised Marie that he was going to buy her like this nice big house if she could get his son off the hook so the morning of the trial Marie gets up and she goes to pray at like the St. Louis Cathedral and it was reported that she stayed at that altar for several hours with like three guinea peppers or something like that in her mouth. And then what she does is she sneaks into the judge's chambers. She places the peppers under his chair. And then she goes to the judge's house and she leaves like this grigri on his doorstep. And a grigri oh, is yeah. kind of like um, in voodoo, it's like a charm bag. Yep. So she leaves this grigri on his doorstep. Uh, full of, like, brick powder, and then she, like, pins this note on the judge's front door, basically declaring that the guy is innocent. She signs her name and everything. She gives, like, no fucks that the judge knows it's her. You know, she doesn't <laughs> care. She's, like, that powerful wow. in New Orleans. And then the thing with the trial, it's like the jury was, I guess, reportedly made up of, like, all these other young, wealthy men who had committed rape crimes as well and gotten off because of who they were. You know, you had the prosecuting attorney. He, um, he pretty much, you know, pled for conviction. Um, he was, like, doing a lot of Bible something, citing the Bible and hoping that, you know, the jury's, I guess, biblical sense of right or wrong would convict this guy. Yeah. Meanwhile, like, Marie is just sitting in the courtroom. She didn't say a word the entire time. And then right before the jury's verdict, she supposedly gets up, she pulls out a few strands of her hair, and she throws them on the prosecutor's shoulder. When the jury comes back, the verdict is not guilty. <laughs> so that's kind of like the stuff that she would do right now. I think the hair, you know, the whole hair thing was for show. Along with all the other things that, like she did with the peppers, the gree-gree. Right. I think it was to make people think that you know, what she was doing was voodoo magic to get a non-guilty verdict. But the truth is probably that the non-guilty verdict came from a jury of other men who had gotten off scot-free, ah, you know, okay. from raping these less fortunate poor women. Very Either that or the wealthy family paid the judge off, you know, or maybe Marie Laveau had some dirt on the judge, you know, with all the secrets that she had learned. You know, she did a lot of blackmailing. Yeah. You know, that's really kind of how she rose to power. Everything else was kind of for show, 
you know, like, I, I don't know. That's kind of how I feel. Well, imagine um, the kind of dirt that she got at the damn hairdressing, you know, place. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. She got all that information. And that, her real power was, like, the influence that she had over people, um, you know, the manipulation and, and things like that. Well, definitely yeah, you know, like she's a like crazy character, definitely. I mean, she sounds like a very, like, manipulative, evil type of kind of person. She was doing these things. Like, she was having these big, um, like, voodoo shows at this lake. And she was turning them into, like, these huge sensational events. I mean, she had props. She had, like, black cat, like, black coffins. Um, she, you know, was slaughtering roosters. Um, meanwhile, she's doing these orgies, these like secret orgies and pretty much what it was, she, she was like a madam. She was having these orgies where these wealthy white men who were looking to pretty much like bang beautiful black or like mixed women and take them as mistresses. Right. She's, she's pimping these women out, you know, this is how she's like making her money. She's blackmailing people. She's doing all this stuff. But then, like, I think the front was the voodoo. Yeah, I think that was the front. Yeah, you might be right. I mean, she sounds like she was a, a very uh, <laughs> smart woman. and uh, She knew how to play people very well, it sounds like. So, um, yeah, that's that's a very interesting character. I knew a little bit about her, but uh, you were definitely able to shed some more light. Anything else on uh, Marie Laveau? You know, it was kind of interesting, but she ended up dying. And after she died one of her daughters came forward and said that her mother never, ever practiced voodoo. I can believe In fact, that. she said that her mother was very much against the religion. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, whether you believe, you know, she was this powerful voodoo priestess or not, you know, the fact remains, I think, that she, she is probably one of the most well-known figures in voodoo, definitely one of the most well-known figures in New Orleans. Yes. And one of the cool things that I did like about her, you know, she did a lot of other things besides like spells and magic. She was known for her work with like convicted prisoners. She was well known for helping, you know, the less fortunate minority people. Um, she was really big into giving, you know, charity. She volunteered a lot of her time with priests. And, you know, she also helped victims of yellow fever. Wow. You know, yeah, that's stuff that so, people don't talk yeah, about. Yeah, she she did a lot of good things. Um, you know, I don't know. She had a ton of followers who believed in her powers, and there's a ton of people that still believe in her. You know, to this day, you can go and visit her tomb. People visit her tomb. They leave offerings of food. You know, basically hoping that she's going to help them. You know, with whatever petitions that they have. Um, some people say she never died. Uh, some people say she turned into like a black crow that flies over the cemetery. Um, some people say, you know, they've seen her as like an old woman in a long dress walking around. Others say, you know, they've seen her like as a snake or a dog. Like she's all kinds of things. Like her apparitions are like all over New Orleans. So she's and um, I don't know, you know, I don't know about that. But I definitely, you know, believe she she lives on in history and in folklore. So yeah, no, definitely sounds like it. A very, 
very interesting woman, uh, definitely into the history of the occult and voodoo and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, very interesting person. Thanks for yeah. bringing that uh, that woman up and uh, you know bringing more information about her. I actually didn't know a lot of that stuff that you mentioned. So it was really actually kind of hard, you right. know, when I started like researching her because nothing is fact with her. Like everything is rumors. Everything's here. Um, you know, there were rumors that were like, no, this woman has lived over a hundred years old. She, you know, people knew when she died, but then people were like, no, she never died. Apparently she had a daughter that looked just like her, who was also named Marie Laveau. That's weird. And when the original Marie died, her daughter stepped up and took her place. Wow. So it like stuff like that helped keep these crazy rumors going on. Like, yeah, like she never dies. Well, yeah, it's because it's like her daughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could see that. You know, and people with, you know, their minds back then, you know, we were much more narrow-minded back then. We would believe or more gullible to believe in stuff like that. You know what I mean? So I could see how people mm-hmm. would think that. Yeah. I mean, she she was a smart woman. Um, I can't even be mad at her. She was doing her thing. You know, she knew how to get her money. Um, you know, she was she was about her business, you know. I mean, they said she was, like, charging, like, all of her white clientele, like, these outrageously high fees. Wow. But then, like, very few black people ever paid for her services. Yeah. So she was kind of cool like that. Yeah, she was you kind know? of like the Robin Hood of the voodoo. Wow. <laughs> that's pretty cool, man. That's, uh, that's, a, that's a great uh, pick, to, you know, as a representation of all this. And I've always been interested in her, and I've always been interested in the whole voodoo thing, and... New Orleans and that whole tie together, I think it's just a magical place. Um, and I think, uh, you know, there's just so much more that could be covered on that um, that just hasn't been. So thank you so much, Gab, for uh, joining me and uh, talking about Marie Laveau this week. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Awesome, awesome. Okay, well, we're going to get to the interview with Marie Jones here in a second. So I hope you guys enjoy. All right, Dark Fringe radio listeners, um, we have a special guest on the line with us today. From the beginning of time, religions have depicted the trials and tribulations of man and the constant war between good and evil. And throughout the centuries, uh, the devil and the legion of fallen angels as he has has impacted the world from ancient times to present times to modern society. Now, from the Garden of Eden to the Salem witch trials uh, to the satanic panic of the 80s and now displayed in pop culture, it seems as though these dark forces will always manifest themselves and reimagine themselves in various ways. Now, to help us navigate through the dark waters of its history and the infamous figures throughout time, the book Demons, the Devil, and Fallen Angels is a compendium that explores over two dozen religions, myths, folklores, and spiritual traditions. We would like to welcome to Dark Fringe Radio the co-author of Demons, the Devil, and Fallen Angels, Marie D. Jones. Marie, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, wonderful. Listen, I, I really I was doing some research on this book, and I, I started looking into all of this, and it was just like almost like a breath of fresh air because this is a very, very intense book. You go through a lot of detail um, from you know ancient times all the way through modern times, 
And um, it, I think it's just a wonderful uh, collection of just different things that you've put together. Now, uh, Marie, could you give me a little bit of uh, background on yourself and what motivated you to write this book and how you came to organize all this extensive uh, information? Well, I have written a number of books. Um, I've written a number of nonfiction books, most of which have uh, in some way revolved around paranormal, unknown anomalies, ancient knowledge, metaphysics, you know, that whole sort of umbrella of subject matter. I had never, ever intended to write a book like this. Um, it, it, and I was approached by the publisher. And, and that happens every now and then where your publisher will say, look, if you don't have anything else to write about, would you consider writing about this topic? And so when Visible Ink Press asked me to, and this was my, my uh, first book for them, so when they asked me to do it, of course I wanted to impress them and do a really good job. But I, I have to be honest, I really thought twice about the subject matter, um, not, not so much because I was afraid of it, but because I knew that there were going to be a lot of people that, uh, you know, wouldn't even pick up the book because they would think that it was going to, you know, take on a, a very religious tone. And, and really what happened was I was asked, and uh, Larry Flaxman, my co-author, we were asked to write a very objective, almost encyclopedic book about these subjects. And I think we did a really good job because I'm pretty sure we covered almost everything you could think of that has to do with demons, the devil, and fallen angels. Yeah, no, it definitely seems that way. Um, and Larry Flaxman, your co-author, I mean, you guys have done a phenomenal job in doing that. Now, um, you know, jumping into the subject matter in itself, uh, I know demon worship and the occult and all that stuff is something that's not um, new <laughs> um, or even in our recent history. Can you explain a little bit uh, regarding maybe some of the older, you know, ancient uh, type of demon or devil worshiping that you guys kind of um, cover here? Well, this is where it gets a little tricky, because when you talk about demons, um, the demons and the devil, even fallen angels, are very much um, Christian or uh, Abrahamic religion uh, subjects that, you know, you, you do find variations of them in other religions, and I'll explain why, but they seem to have really evolved into what today we think of when we think of those terms and what pop culture certainly portrays uh, with movies, you know, about demons and demonic possession and exorcisms, what have you. But what's really interesting is it all goes back to primitive humans and how we came up through pagan and earth-based religious traditions, not even religious at the, at the time. They really were belief systems which then later evolved into the more sophisticated religions that we know of today. But originally, way back when, our ancestors lived among natural disasters and all kinds of things that they either categorized as being good because maybe they helped grow crops or they helped um, them find prey or they, you know, they, were, they were really beneficial events or they were bad, like, say, an earthquake or a volcanic eruption or, you know, being slaughtered by another tribe. Yeah. So over time, just these natural events that occurred, whether they were, you know, man-made or, or 
the earth just doing what the earth does, we started to put things into two columns, good and bad, good and evil. And because we didn't understand the scientific aspects of what was happening around us, we deified those categories. We created deities to represent, to symbolically represent the good side and the bad side. And, you know, the earliest traditions, there were many gods and goddesses and many um, darker deities. Not always demons. I mean, sometimes they were tricksters and mischief makers. And over time, as we sort of evolved into <clears throat> more monotheistic traditions, we, we decided, okay, we're going we're gonna to pull all the good guys together, kind of like Infinity War, if you had to pull all the good superheroes together into one, yeah. you know, one god, <laughs> and then, you know, Thanos, right? And then you have one bad guy. And, right. and that was just sort of a, a human necessity to simplify things. Yeah, and then from there, yeah, you know, the Catholic Church probably has more to do with how, and how we think of demons and the devil than any other um, authority, authority group or authority figure, because they, more than anyone, have molded, um, molded it into what we think of today. And, and I don't think they did it for uh, beneficial purposes, unfortunately. No, I think you're absolutely right. And, and you know, that's ex is exemplified by, you know, what you stated earlier by, you know, paganistic type of uh, traditions. And, for instance, you know, many people may know or not know this. Like, for instance, Halloween was more of a traditional uh, harvesting of, the, you know, the pagan uh, society, you know. And that was kind of adopted by the the uh, the Christians and uh, the Catholics to kind of make it their own. And they kind of made a, a more of a, a festivity of it. And, um kind of made it their own to kind of make uh, paganism something to be forgotten about and for everybody to kind of follow that religion. So I see where you're going with that, and that's very interesting. Um, another thing I, I wanted to ask you was, you know, you exp explore many faces of the devil and all these demons and evil spirits. Um, what are, or who are some of the supporting cast that you think have had a significant role um, in some of these, um, you know, some of these events as well? Well, I think every every region of the world, every country has its own key players, and uh, you know there's so many of them. So, for example, and it, Christmas is a really great example of how different these deities or these good and bad deities can be. So, just to use that as an example, um, we have Saint Nicholas. You know, we have who became Santa Claus. We have this wonderful figure that traveled around, knocked on doors um, in, you know, the early days. He was, a, a, even though he was a saint, he was a pagan character. And he would give goodies to good children that behaved well, and he would reward them. Well, throughout many different regional belief systems, there is a really bad guy, like Krampus, yeah. who walked with him <laughs> and punished the bad kids and they would do it together you know it was almost like Mutt and Jeff so there were you know there were this was really prevalent in the European countries um, and Scandinavia and Germany and, and that whole region but even in Greece they had their own spiteful um, sort of anti-Santa Claus 
And that is a really great example of what was happening on the grander scale with each country or each region having their god and then their anti-god or their demon, their devil, or a whole bunch of them. Because most other regions were not monotheistic. So they had a whole host of key players that had a lot of the same characteristics as we give to demons, um, but they went by completely different names. Like the Japanese had the Oni. You know, they were big, giant demons with horned heads, claws, and sharp teeth. They were cruel. They were chaotic. Um, but they had the, the capability to become good. And that sort of speaks to the fallen angel side of things where you have these former, you know, wonderful, beautiful angels that were up in heaven that just sort of became very rebellious and got booted out of heaven for what, whatever reason, mainly because they were egotistical <laughs> or vain. And, you know, ended up going over to the dark side, so to speak. But they still had the capability of good in them. And then you have other demons, especially, you know, with, uh, with the demons that we know of in Judeo-Christianity, where they're goners. I mean, they're just lost causes. You're not going to be, like, sitting down and talking them into being good guys again. They really are totally representative of evil and darkness and everything that is against the good and the light interesting well let me switch gears here for a second and um i know there's like a lot of different historical figures throughout uh time and history that have been synonymous with you know either devil worshiping or the occult for instance alistair crowley is a great example of that was he truly as they say the world's wickedest man i mean that's what the title as some of them have given him or was that just a figure of someone who's just misunderstood? What is your opinion on that? I remember when I was, I'm, I'm older, I've been in my 50s. So when I was a teenager, I was really into Led Zeppelin. And I remember Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Page was, you know, like a huge follower of Aleister Crowley. So I started reading about him because I loved Jimmy Page. And what's really interesting is that he was a showman. He was in it for the attention. And I, the teachings, his teachings were not satanic. They were theosophist teachings. They were maybe hedonistic, but they were not, you know, sacrifice babies and, and goats and things like that. That was such a misinterpretation of who he was and what he stood for. But at his very core... He loved attention, and he loved to press people's buttons, and he truly was interested in the occult, but I think that in a lot of ways he used that to become a sort of celebrity in his own right. Yeah, he was kind of like a flamboyant shit starter from, like, you know, back then. <laughs> yeah, he was. He right. was. You know, and the funny thing is, is that people will automatically, because he's, seen in a lot of pictures, you know, making the all kinds of weird signs with his hands and he just, the way he looks into the camera, he was very promiscuous. He was a drug addict. He loved, um, again, that sort of hedonistic, uh, abandoned, you know, just total lack of responsibility. But at the same time that he was, you know, he was a wild man. He was really into sex. 
which of course becomes labeled satanic, uh, you know, automatically. But he was really also very serious about the practice of Kabbalah, Philema, some of these more um, obscure occult traditions, none of which were focused on evil. In fact, his code was do what thou wilt. Uh, and, you know, that a lot of people said, well, he's just doing what he wants. No, that's not necessarily what that means. It just means you do what you will, meaning using your will. Um, but he also believed that, you know, that there were consequences. And modern witchcraft with uh, paganism all have that same belief. Do what thou will as you harm none. So you do your will, but you don't harm anybody. Have a good time, you know. That's right, that's right. Be who you are. Be wicked, be crazy, but don't harm anybody. And that kind of got lost in the in the fray. Of course, as, as, as many things do in history, and as the saying goes, as beloved, so below, right? As above, so below is what they say. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, he certainly wasn't one of the first historical figures that have had ties to, or at least rumored to have had ties to the occult and, you know, devil worship and so on and so forth. John Dee is another interesting figure who was a noted mathematician, astronomer, astrologer, uh, occult philosopher. And um, could you tell me a little bit more about him? He's, I think he's also another person uh, that kind of falls into that same category with Crowley, uh, where he was kind of misunderstood. Oh, yeah, just like Helena Blavatsky and all of these people were interested in not necessarily the dark side in terms of evil and harming other human beings, but the darker powers that existed. Um, the occult means hidden. So hidden knowledge, knowledge that was not accepted by the current church um, knowledge that was sort of, you know, had to be taught behind closed doors, so to speak. John Dee was also very much interested in magic, white magic, black magic, you name it. <clears throat> and there were a lot of characters like that, uh, even Dion Fortune to some extent, who got labeled very negatively just because they were interested in knowing more than what the church of the day was telling them was truth. Um, you know, they wanted to know, well, what is that dark side? What is that shadow side? Whereas the whole, you know, light movement was ignoring the shadow aspects of humans and human behavior. But they also wanted to know how to learn, learn how to uh, manipulate energy and manipulate natural forces. Some of them, yeah, maybe they had huge egos and they did things that weren't, you know, entirely kosher, so to speak. But <clears throat> none of them were sacrificing children. And I swear, it's like trying to tell people this, they don't want to believe it. Yeah, that's, um, a, that's an issue. You know, yeah, Eliphas Levi, he was another one. He was a master magician and he, you know, he studied the tarot and he studied the Hebrew alphabet and, you know, the... the, the um profound nature of numbers and things like that and candle magic and all kinds of really interesting stuff that because it wasn't, you know, accepted by the Catholic Church automatically got stuck in the demon worship aisle. Yeah, very easily. And even the word occult, I mean, um, I grew up, you know, in the 80s and, you know, you say occult, that automatically means devil worship. 
you know, that's what, exactly. <laughs> you know, when I was growing up, you say that word, it was synonymous with that. So, um, you know, a, a lot of people don't understand that, you know, when you're talking about a cult, like what you explained earlier, it's just hidden language, hidden meaning, hidden uh, teachings. Right. So, yeah, a lot of people have that misunderstanding. Well, another reason why that kind of spooks people is because, you know, magic, and we're talking about magic with a K at the end, right. it's ritualistic. So there are, just like with, with Freemasonry or, or, you know, any uh, Golden Dawn or Rosicrucianism, any of these sort of mystery traditions or occult traditions rely very heavily on ritual. And ritual is something that can look spooky, to people that aren't involved in it and don't know what what the ritual is symbolic of. So you might have somebody lighting black candles and chanting really, you know, creepy things in Latin and walking around a five-pointed star that's been drawn out in chalk on the ground, but none of those things are evil. They're, they've just been misinterpreted as evil. Yeah, very, uh, very interesting. And I, I really wanted to touch on uh, Anton LaVey. Uh, he's a he's a guy that most younger listeners may know as being the uh, founder of the Church of Satan. And, um, you know, a very prolific character when it comes to kind of all this. What's your stance on him? I think, again, you have someone who, um, <laughs> well, I mean, he was a musician and, an, and you know, an author. But he was also a showman. He was really charismatic. He was kind of like a cult leader, yeah. but this cult was a little more loosely formed. <laughs> and I think that, you know, he, I think he liked the idea of presenting himself as this sort of modern-day Satanist, this real charismatic dark character, because it was really appealing to celeb- a lot of celebrities at the time who gravitated to him because it was like, you know, the nonconformist, really cool thing to do. I mean, he had supposedly had an affair with Marilyn Monroe. I mean, who knows? But again, here is someone who started a church, a tradition that if you actually go research it, you are not going to find. It's almost boring. You're not going to find them dragging bodies up to the top of mountains and cutting (laughs) them open and drinking the blood and sacrificing children, you're not going to find that. What you will find is a lot of um, psychodrama. You will find a lot of flamboyant ritual. You will find a lot of, uh, you know, sex again and, and the idea of living hedonistically, relying on individuality, defying authority and tradition. And that's another thing. Whenever you have these organizations or groups that defy authority, and the authority that they're defying basically is Christianity. Um, you know, they're immediately labeled as bad. But yet what they were doing is trying to say, look, you can enjoy sex. You can seek pleasure. You can want a lot of money. You can want wealth and, and all of the good things in life. And you're not going to be deemed a sinner. You know, we're not going to make you go to confession. And it was, you know, it, that's what got them labeled yeah. as being the bad guys. The nonconformists, um, unfortunately. Yeah, definitely the defiance of authority. Um, I, many, many years ago, and I wrote a book called Science, it was P-S-I-E-N-C-E. It was about uh, the paranormal and quantum physics and 
kind of looked at different ways that maybe the two could, or quantum physics, theoretical physics, could help explain paranormal phenomena. And what happened was I got thousands of emails over the course of the next few years. Half of them were from religious fundamentalists threatening me, literally threatening me with death um, in some cases because I equated these sort of God forces, these creative generative forces in nature and in the universe with something scientific. Yeah. <laughs> and then I thought you know, the other half were from a lot of people who, who were from the Church of Satan and some of the other smaller uh, satanic organizations who were cheering me on, saying that is what we believe. You know, and, and, you're, and I was so scared because I didn't know who the, you know, what these people really were. And I was on a, ra a big radio show where I kind of made a negative comment, and boy, you know, did I get called out for it. Right. A number of people emailing or calling in, you know, on other shows that I was on to say, look, this is what we're about. Go do some research. You're supposed to be a great researcher. And I did, and I admitted my mistake, um, you know, and I ended up dating a guy from the Church of Satan for nine months, <laughs> and he was quite normal. <laughs> we broke up for other reasons, but, you know, he was, they're quite normal. Yeah. So uh, it's just, again, yeah, it's a misrepresentation, and it was a great education for me, as well as writing this book of how easily we judge people based on, um, you know, what one particular body or organization says about them. It's amazing to me that um, people will go to as far as, you know, wishing death upon another person for just asking questions. It, it really yeah, baffles like, my mind. You're Christians, and you're, you're wishing me dead because I'm looking at, at the world from a little bit of a different perspective. It was shocking. Very Christian. It was know. shocking. It was very frightening. <laughs> very Christian, huh? <laughs> well, you know. I mean, I have, you know, I have a lot of friends that are, I'm not Christian myself, but I have a lot of friends that are, so I'm not, I, I'm not meaning to generalize here. Right. No, but what we, what people don't realize is that demons, the devil specifically, Lucifer, Satan, fallen angels, these are Christian characters, okay? They're, even though there are deviations of them found in other religions and other belief systems and other parts of the world that, you know, don't even really have, like the Aboriginal system has a, a good and an evil. They have spirits that they believe in. But when we talk about the big players, it's, always Christianity, and it's always the long and very dark, very violent history of the Catholic Church imposing order and control, um, you know, over the populace, especially women. Yes, very you much know, so. I definitely get into, yeah, the whole, you know, the witch burnings and the, mm -hmm. and also, you know, the inquisitions and things like that. Absolutely. I mean, it was, if you were different, if you didn't, if they didn't understand you, <laughs> then they deemed you a witch, and that could go for men too. So yeah, and it's uh, you know even in modern times now, if if you say something different, they label you as crazy, right? Yeah, yeah. The only cool thing I have to say is that the internet and social networking have been such a powerful force for other religions and other belief systems 
to kind of step up. And, you know, a lot of, like on Facebook, for example, there's a lot of witchcraft groups. There's Wiccan, there's pagans, there's neo-pagans, there's shamanism, there's earth traditions, there's environmental earth, you know, I mean, there's all these different places now. Even atheism is huge where you can go and express yourself with other like minds and learn from each other and talk to each other and have community um, without having to, you know, risk your reputation. And, and we didn't have that before. So I think a lot of people felt really isolated yeah, no. because their, their beliefs didn't line up with, you know, the order of the day, which was mainly Judeo-Christianity, Islam, whatever, the, the Western three, the big three traditions. Yeah, I agree, and I, I do believe that social media has definitely given a voice to a lot of these un, um, you know, unknown um, religions and untalked about in our time. So I think it's definitely a great thing for them. Let me ask you this. There's also some other historical figures that are kind of tied to the occult and all this as well that maybe some people are not aware of. Um, could you maybe expound on that a little bit and maybe uh, give me a couple examples of some of the famous historical figures that we may not uh, readily, you know, marry the occult with, but um, may have had, um, you know, ties to that as well? Um, well, we talked about John Dee. Um, Eliphas Levi was another magician. And, you know, we're not talking about guys that get on stage and <laughs> pull rabbits Grab out of the hat. Grab it out of the hat, right? <laughs> and we're talking about people that, yeah, that practice ritual magic. And Helena Blavatsky was the founder of Thelema, which was one of the most influential mystery traditions. Aleister Crowley, of course, was a, a part of that. Um, I'm trying to think of some others that were really key. So, I mean, there's also groups. So even though you have uh, individual people, you also have organizations like right. um, the Order of the Golden Dawn and the Freemasons and... Mm -hmm the Cathars even, um, which their tradition carried on into a sort of Gnostic form of Christianity. You have Rosicrucianism, which is really interesting because I remember, again, when I was younger, I joined um, the Rosicrucian order, and it was just, you know, it's a very metaphysical order, and everything that they teach is very metaphysical, yes. even though it's a, sort of an occult tradition. There's nothing dark about it. In fact, it's based very much on the teachings of Egyptian mystery schools. And it was fascinating. And a lot of it I could see, um, a lot of the people that teach things like the law of attraction yes. borrowed some of their teachings from Rosicrucianism. But if you told somebody in general, you know, I, I'm studying Rosicrucianism, they would look at you like you were crazy. <laughs> you you right. were satanic, you yeah. know. Yeah. But it had nothing to do with that. And I think the same with the Freemasons. Freemasons kind of go both ways. You've got, because uh, both of my grandfathers were Freemasons, so you've got the general um, Freemason organizations that were altruistic, very much into ritual, but they were even though it was secretive, you know, and they didn't allow women until a certain time, they were not doing anything 
that it was even questionable. But then you also have other Freemason groups that kind of went more underground. And I think they were a little more secretive and a little more exclusionary. So it really depended on the group. But, um, you know, I hate to say this, but Adolf Hitler was a huge, huge uh, occult believer. Yeah. Yeah, I think and, that's been proven through history. Yeah, he really was. And, and, you know, it's not fun to talk about, but it's kind of interesting because he was absolutely fascinated with the idea that there was um, this sort of energy, this very creative, manipulated, manipulative energy called real energy. Yes. That, um, you know, you could use it for good, you could use it for bad, you could raise it and create it. Uh, using sexual rituals and things like that. It, but, you know, for him, we know <laughs> that everything that he did, he kind of took into his twisted political and religious um, vendetta, I guess you could say, his, his psycho psychopathic uh, vendetta that he had against certain groups of people. Yeah, he perverted Because there uh, were other people... Yeah. yeah, I mean, there were other people that were into this whole thing about real energy that were not, you know, going out and ordering mass extinction. Even though that was a part of some of the teachings, he was one of the few that actually followed through. And what's funny, too, is that all came from a fiction, uh, a book of fiction, a novel. Right. <laughs> uh, it wasn't real, you know, and it just shows you the power of an idea that it doesn't even have to come from a factual source for somebody to take it and run with it and just go crazy with it. Yeah, it's funny. And, uh, you know, he uh, was known to have um, an occultist, a, a seer with him. Uh, he consulted with on a on a very frequent basis. And, uh, you know, many people may not know that. And many people may not know that Ronald Reagan did the same thing. <laughs> you fast forward. Yeah, it, you know. yeah it, it's true. And, you know, you hear all these stories about skull and bones and a lot of these secret orders that are still continuing today and how they're directly tied in with our most powerful world leaders and political figures and they're doing all this creepy stuff in private and, you know, who knows, maybe sacrificing people. Um, and again, I don't, you know, I don't know how much of that is true or how much of that is a continuation of what people have always thought about these occult orders. I mean, Hermeticism, there is nothing, nothing negative about the teachings of Hermes. There's nothing, yeah. nothing. In fact, uh, the Hermetic teachings are so spiritual and yet they also, if you read them, you get these sort of little snippets that sound like, oh, my God, you know, people back then knew about quantum physics? Yeah. You know, they knew about, you know, it's like, really? They knew about consciousness? Things that we're just now discovering today? They knew about the science behind all these cosmic forces and universal forces and how we as human beings were a part of that and, you know, as above, so below, which is ancient and yet ties directly into some of the more cutting-edge science science uh, teachings and knowledge that we're learning today. So but there's nothing satanic about it. 
No, there isn't. And unfortunately, and all these things, all these teachings that are not traditional get lumped into that category. So yeah. let, let me ask you this. Do you have any insight on Benjamin Franklin and the Hellfire Club? Are you aware of any of that? I heard about that. I also heard that he was a Freemason and most that you know, most of our political figures, historical figures, the founding fathers, they've all been tied into because um, I remember my dad used to always talk about that. My dad was a scientist. He was a geophysicist, but he was, like, really into um, the occult and paranormal and metaphysics and all that stuff. And, you know, it just seems like if you are a brilliant person, you're going to be interested in more than just what you might be learning when you go to school religion or your, excuse me, the church on Sunday. And a lot of the founding fathers and the key figures throughout our history, the history of our country, have been linked to occult orders and mystery traditions and supposedly were very big on things like sacred uh, geometry and uh, number symbolism. And, you know, you look at the dollar bill, you look at the back of a dollar bill or the back of a hundred dollar bill, and there's 11 windows on each side of each building and 11-11, and people find all these occult symbols, and, you know, this pattern makes a, a pinnacle or there's all this really weird stuff that probably was just an aspect of their curiosity. So. Yeah, a lot of gematria, you know, involved in symbolism uh, involved. Yeah. yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, they were just as you know. Look at us; we're talking about this stuff. What makes us think that <laughs> they weren't as equally interested? And they didn't have the internet, so right. imagine. I mean, <laughs> they had to get together. See, that's the thing, right? Back then, they had to get together in dark rooms and basements. Yeah, yeah. So that their you know fundamentalist neighbors didn't know what they were doing, whereas today we can be a lot more anonymous about our interests. You're right. And Just go on the internet, you know, right. <laughs> join, a, join a group on uh, Facebook. Or... Yeah, we're definitely lucky in these days and ages where we can actually do that and have uh, information at our fingertips at any moment. Another thing I wanted to ask you that I found very interesting in aspect of this book, there's um, a theory that you touch on um, regarding UFOs and aliens and them actually being interdimensional entities. Uh, could you elaborate on that? So this was something that I had been thinking about a lot and um, because I, I actually started out as a UFO researcher way back when. I was instrumental in two different MUFON groups in the 1990s and that was my thing. And then I got more into the paranormal in general. And UFO sightings and reports, and this actually applies to ghosts and, and apparitions too, and definitely to cryptids. Okay. A lot of times, the, the, the reports and sightings that would come in, uh, and, and I'll tie this into, you know, ancient aliens and all that stuff. So a lot of the uh, sightings that would come in would be very um, nuts and bolts, right? Somebody looked up, they saw a light in the sky, and then it shot off into the distance. You know, it was really bright, whatever. Or they saw a craft fly, fly in from one part of the sky and then shoot off into another. But a whole lot more defied those very simplistic explanations. People would talk about things like it appeared right in front of me out of nowhere. It seemed like it was being projected from somewhere, like a movie projector projecting an image on the screen, and then it flickered, 
and disappeared. Um, and so things like that where it sounded like they were coming from possibly another reality, another dimension, you know, being maybe a holographic projection or something that wasn't entirely physical and of this birth. Now, if you go back and you read the Bible or, or any religious text, any ancient text, you read about angels and you read about fallen angels that fell from the sky and you read some of the wild, wild-ass stories, whether it's in, you know, the Hindu texts or the Buddhist texts or Christianity or Judaism or what have you, it sounds almost like they might have been mistaking uh, what they gave religious connotations to, demons and angels and, you know, as they, they might have been aliens. Because if you buy into the ancient alien theory that we have been visited repeatedly by alien civilizations, well, that would include those very same time frames when these people were writing these religious texts, whether it was Buddhism, you know, 1,500, 2,000 years before Christianity, or even earlier than that. So, yeah, and then, you know, then to kind of think about it in modern terms, where how do we really know? You know, have we been mistaking demons and angels? Uh, maybe they were aliens. It's quite possible. I mean, even and because we didn't know, yeah, we didn't know what the hell an alien was and, <laughs> you know, what the heck, there's a spaceship, where did that come from? Right. So what did we do? We called it a chariot that came out. Because we knew what chariots were back then. Of course. Oh, the chariot, you know, the wheels were on fire and came out of the sky. And, and that, was yeah. the, that was depicted <laughs> in even ancient art. I mean, you, there was many examples of, you know, UFO uh, depictions in ancient art. And to even talk about the cryptids in our time now, I mean, if you talk about Bigfoot, you know, and you look at the Native American culture, they recognize as Bigfoot as an entity, not as an actual, you know, living, breathing, exactly. you know, uh, living thing. So it's more of an entity than yeah. it is anything else to them. So why wouldn't that be an alien or some type of, you know, uh, maybe, you know, entity or maybe even demon? Right. And you know what? I think demon and angel are just words that right. get applied to things that we don't understand. Right. So maybe there are a whole set of demons that are completely separate from what they might have been seeing that were aliens and maybe they really were angels, but it just seems like when you, you know, when you go back and you read the old religious stories of angels coming down from heaven and carrying people back up, was that an alien abduction? <laughs> um, <laughs> but we don't know. I mean, we weren't there, but what we do know is that they had a very limited uh, knowledge of science. They had a very limited worldview, and they really couldn't like call somebody up on their cell phone and say, you know what, we just saw that. What do you think it is? You guys see this too? So, yeah. like you said, what they did is they drew pictures and images that we now today are trying to figure out what the heck they things look like. They're wearing helmets, or they've got those almond-shaped eyes, or they're coming out of what really looks like it might be a, a UFO, you know? Yeah, yeah. Or maybe they were, you know, maybe eating mushrooms or peyote when they, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and you know what? But wouldn't that be something? I mean, a lot of people think the book of Revelation was written while on a mushroom trip. Yeah, that's a very uh, and, popular um, theory now. 
Yeah. And that goes into like things that Graham Hancock talks a lot about, which is, you know, the the symbolism, the UFO and alien symbolism that's found in all kinds of belief systems and often appears when, you know, somebody's taking DMT or some kind of mushroom or Yeah, the uh, comparison uh, so to, yeah. <laughs> the comparison to the burning bush and that actually being the acacia tree and that being full of DMT and maybe that's why he saw what what Moses saw when he saw the burning bush. Yeah, I mean think about it too and as time goes on and we evolved and our our view of the world evolved and all of a sudden cars came on the scene and planes and things, all of a sudden those chariots in the sky became, you know, the cigar shaped craft or uh, the V-shaped or whatever, the saucer, the flying saucer. Yeah. No, so I, I think it's entirely possible. Yeah, very much so. Well, Marie, listen, I could probably talk to you for another four or five hours, um, seriously, um, regarding all this stuff. But um, I don't want to keep you too long. But I wanted you to tell our listeners where they could find your information where they can find your book and anything that you have written. I've looked at your whole catalog of, of, of novels that you've done and you touch on all the subjects that I'm super interested in. So I definitely would love to have you back on in the future, but could you tell our listeners where they can find you, uh, your books and all your information? Absolutely. Well, I would love to come back on any time. Um, they can go to my website, which is mariedjones.com. And all of the books are on there, and I try to keep um, all of the books should be available in any brick-and-mortar bookstore as well as all online outlets, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, whatever's left that Amazon hasn't bought out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the book that I'm working on now is called Celebrity Ghosts and Notorious Hauntings, and it's really, really fun. So that'll be out next year. I also have in September a disaster survival guide Ooh. coming out, which I'm I'm trained and all of that stuff. Very neat. Very so neat. Um, always something coming out. Absolutely, yep. absolutely. Well, Marie, again, that's um, everybody can find all your stuff at mariedjones.com, and again, you can go on Amazon and then any other bookstore to find all your books. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Perfect, perfect. Marie, listen, it was certainly a pleasure. I would definitely love to have you come on again and spend more time with you and uh, talk about some more crazy stuff that we uh, that we love to talk about on a daily basis. So thank you again for coming on Dark Fringe Radio. <laughs> you are welcome. And yeah, anytime. Wonderful. Marie, have a great night and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Take care. Fantastic guest, Marie D. Jones. I want to thank her so much for coming on the podcast and uh, talking about her book, uh, Demons, the Devil, and Fallen Angels. And uh, what a fantastic uh, you know, uh, guest to have on this uh, podcast talking about the occult. And um, again, uh, you can find all her information at mariedjones.com. Again, that's mariedjones.com. 
Com. And I encourage you guys, if you're into any of this kind of stuff, um, you know, the paranormal, UFOs, uh, government conspiracies, um, she's got it all. I mean, she has a vast array of different types of books that she's written and co-written. So I definitely encourage you guys to check that out. Um, again, um, I wanted to remind everybody about the social media. You can find us on uh, Facebook Twitter, and also Instagram. All you have to do is look up Dark Fringe Radio, and uh, please uh, share, like, subscribe, all that good stuff uh, With when it comes to the social media. Again, I encourage everybody, please, to go on uh, iTunes, and I, also, if you're on Google Play, to give a rating, a five-star rating, and also a comment. That helps us tremendously, so if you can uh, do that, uh, we definitely appreciate that um, with all our hearts. So, um, again, Will Martinez here with Dark Fringe Radio. We'll hope to bring you another episode for you guys next week. So, uh, for the meantime, hope you guys enjoy and have a good night. Mr. Crowley, what went on in your head?
think uh, there's a, a f one of the most famous of all alchemical axioms is as above, so below, meaning always that in every small part of reality, there is a tiny reflection of the great overstructure of reality. And in the largest structures are hidden the secrets of the smallest and vice versa. We also have rediscovered this principle in the 20th century through fractal mathematics. Uh, but the psychedelics have brought us back to this alchemical mystery, shorn of any vocabulary for, for dealing with it, shorn of any real living notion of the spirit. And so we have sought as far afield as the Tibetan Book of the Dead, or uh, Freudianism, or uh, there, there have been various efforts to cast the psychedelic experience one way or another. The hot one now, uh, of course, is shamanism. Shamanism and alchemy are a seamless enterprise. Uh, alchemy, uh, the connecting figure, if you're interested in this, between the shaman and the alchemist is the smith, the worker of metal. And the, the shaman and the smith in primitive cultures are always associated as brother figures. Uh, they both work in metals. Well, what all this means for us beyond the commitment to our own sort of ordering the Wunderkammer of our own private imagination. What it means is uh, important because if you look around you, the entire global civilization is undergoing some kind of meltdown. Uh, the planet itself is now to be seen as a kind of alchemical retort. The prima materia to be transformed are the nuclear stockpiles, the toxic waste dumps, the industrial wastelands, the populations devoid of hope, the uh, populations uh, uh, at threat of infectious and fatal epidemic disease. Uh, there is a, a great deal of prima materia to be worked on at the historical level of the alchemical process.